Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Mark Schroeder, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southern California. He's interested in the ways in which rationality, reasons, value, and other evaluative and normative categories are related to the mundane physical world in which we live, in which things are round, red, or left of one another. Welcome, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yes, I want to start with one of your essays, Persons as Things. Uh, yeah. You say we are biological creatures, things of flesh and blood, whose behavior is governed by the same principles that govern the behavior of any other social mammals, plus or minus the complications that come from the recursive possibilities of access to natural language. That much is a fact. I, I have to warn you, Mark, um, I have no philosophy born in my body. <laughs> and That's okay. The conversation will be interesting. Um, to, to make matters worse, I'm in the business of making uh, people less relevant, uh, in, in essence, replacing people with machines. And so in that context, it will be, it's an interesting thing to think about. So suppose we have a machine that replaces a person, we would think the machine is a thing. And if the machine is a thing, then the person is also a thing. Yeah, of, there's a sense in which that's true. Of that the person is not a thing, then one has to argue that the machine is not a thing either, right? And so... If, if the machine has fully replaced the person, yeah. Fully replaced the person. So, so what are the implications of... Um, you know, the essay, persons as things. Yeah, so, so this is, it's ultimately one of the central questions of philosophy, how we fit our lived experience yeah. into the world as revealed to us by science and experience. And there's something about being the business of replacing persons by machines that can make us all wonder, you know, can I really be replaced? by a machine. It's one thing to know that everything that you do 
is the results of lots of smaller and easier to understand processes that can be built up. And it's another thing to look at the machine that's replaced you and uh, feel as important as you used to feel before that machine <laughs> came along to replace you, right? right. Um, so um, the uh, I got into this topic not because my philosophical research was originally about the relationship between persons and things, but rather because my wife and I were living in Santa Barbara, which is about a hundred miles away from the University of Southern California, where I teach. Yeah, and she was doing her surgical residency, working about eighty to one hundred hours every week and we started expecting our first child and we sat down in the evening and we thought to ourselves how how are we going to raise a child whose mother is working 100 hours a week and whose father is commuting 100 miles each way to and from work and my mother-in-law came through and she moved in with us for a year to take care of our daughter caroline and so i spent a year uh living with her with my in-laws and so Ever since then, I've been thinking a little bit about interpersonal conflict <laughs> because uh, of that experience. And so uh, what happened is I read a very important philosophy paper by the philosopher Ray Langton. And it really helped me understand something about the relationship between myself and my mother-in-law that I was having a really hard time understanding while we were in that experience. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that has to do with how we understand each other and why it is that we can sometimes feel bad about the way that other people are treating us. Hmm. Um, and there's a particular way of feeling bad about the way that somebody else treats you, where you feel like you're not being taken seriously. You feel like you're being written off or ignored or like you don't matter to the other person who you think that you ought to matter to because they're, they're your friend or your spouse, or your parent or your child or your colleague or something, somebody that you have a relationship with. And that's really the, that feeling of being let down or dismissed is the feeling that I was trying to understand in this paper. And the way I think about it now, a couple of years after writing that paper is that uh, there are a lot of things that we want to understand uh, about the relationships that we have with other people. Yeah. But interpersonal relationships are by definition relationships between persons, between people. And so if you want to understand what's special about them, we have to understand what's special or distinctive about being a person. Yeah. And so whatever that is, uh, that's special about persons, understanding it, I think, is going to be really important in order to understand uh, how we feel about our interpersonal relationships and how they can give rise to distinctive kinds of conflict and which ways of treating each other are involved the kind of respect that we sometimes think that people deserve and that we feel like we're missing when we feel like we're written off by somebody else. So, so Mark, uh, you know, being a person, it's not necessarily a set of universal features or attributes, I would think, right? Each person presumably has a definition of himself or herself that cannot be fully articulated to an onlooker, right? I mean, it's, it's impossible to fully, um, fully reveal what you believe you are, right? I think that's right. I think that 
our conceptions of ourselves are more detailed and fine-grained than we'd be able to write down. In fact, that once we wrote it down, then there'd be new, th new true things about us that, that would reveal about us. And yeah. we'd probably change the act of trying to write it down. So I do think that that self-understanding, that what you said, that self-understanding can be elusive and that that could be one of the things that creates distance between us, that we never perfectly understand each other. In that yeah, so, so two issues I'd see. One is, do we understand ourselves perfectly well? Uh, maybe not. And then if we don't do that, then your chance of understanding somebody else dramatically decreases, right? I mean, you have a lot more information on yourself and you say, after having seen all that, you still don't understand yourself. Uh, that it's nearly impossible for a, a person to understand another person. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. So one of the things that's very important to me is to push back against the idea that each of us has, has a privileged way of yeah. understanding ourselves. I think there's something that is sort of a, a product of you know, post-enlightenment liberalism that we think that respecting other people requires respecting their own interpretation of themselves. And then we think that each person's an authority and we should trust them. And it's paternalistic or interfering to act like we have a better idea about what's best for somebody than their own idea. But I think that this is really a mistake. I think that each of us can be mistaken about ourselves. And that part of why we know that's true is the very simple fact that sometimes we find out that we were wrong about ourselves in the past. Right. So for example, I might wake up one day and I have some you know, tragic experience. Maybe I have uh, an injury and I'm no longer able to pursue my uh, career that I intended playing the flute. And mm -hmm. so all my years that I went into studying uh, the flute and practicing for 12 hours a day at music school have all come to nothing. And I had this idea of who I was, that I was this person on my way to being, you know, first chair flute in the New York Philharmonic or something. And in fact, I realized I was totally wrong. That's not who I was. I was somebody else. And I have to figure out who that is and what that is. Or we could find out that a relationship that we thought was important and meaningful to us uh, was in fact not what we thought it was at all because the other person has two other families somewhere else that they were hiding from us. And when we discovered that we were wrong about who we were, uh, that shows us that we, we might still be wrong about who we are in some other way. Um, yeah. And so I think that it can't be that we're always right about ourselves. But I agree with you that if we're not always right about ourselves, we're even less often going to be right about other people. But yeah. since, since they might not always be right about themselves... Right. Even though it's easier to be right about yourself than to be right about other people, it doesn't follow that we have to always respect what they think about themselves. Sometimes we might be right and they might be wrong. That's possible. Yeah. So, so the other thing I was thinking about, Mark, as, as you were talking, is that it also takes us a long time. Something similar happened to me in my professional career. Um, you know, I, been, I, I became an engineer, but I never really liked engineering as an example. Mm -hmm. but, but we are spending 
five, six, seven years before we realize that is not what you are. And so, so, so you know, that, that feels like a very long time. Is it, is it a problem with the processes that we deploy in, in analyzing ourselves or we, we, you know, we sort of don't think about it, but what is causing us to miss what we really are? Well, I think a number of things can cause us to miss what we really are. Sometimes it's because we're looking for something else yeah. that we, we hope we're one kind of thing that our story goes one way. And in fact, that wasn't a good thing to hope for. We it should have, <laughs> we only found out that it wasn't a good thing to hope for later. Uh, and once we stop hoping for it, that helps us see. Sometimes I think uh, it can actually be because who we are is shaped by what happens to us. Mm-hmm. And so if you think of living your life as a little bit like writing a novel you, and you have to write the chapters in order. So you write the first chapter and you have an idea of how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. But what you really want to do is you want to give your later self good material and it could be that you'll end up with a better novel uh, than the one you thought you were writing. And that'll be fine if you end up with a better novel than you thought you were writing. Uh, it's just that you um, didn't see yet how to make it better when you started at the beginning. So I think that there are, are different ways in which we, we might lock this knowledge early on. But it's just a thing that's very hard to have perfect knowledge about. and we know from other fields that yeah. when something's not transparent, we, the best we can do is to test for it. And any test that we have is going to err in some ways. Um, and we, yeah, have to, so, we have to learn to live with those kinds of errors. Yeah. So what you mentioned before is very interesting, Mark. So you said, if I understood it correctly, uh, in, in some situations, you might be in a better position to understand another individual than that individual himself or herself. Now we have enough evidence that there there are, you know, errors or difficulty in understanding oneself. And so, so it makes sense that somebody else could understand you better than you are, better than you yourself could. Definitely. So let me give a trivial example. Yesterday, yeah. I was trying to install a new set of sconces in our bedroom that my wife had purchased. And I wanted to do something else for the day. I wanted to prepare for my teaching for the semester. My wife wanted me to and do the electrical work for these lights. And, yeah. and everything didn't go the way that I hoped. I uh, punctured one of the wires and created a short. And my, mm-hmm. my circuit breaker was dripping. And my daughter was wanting to use something that required electricity and kept asking me when it would be ready. And I started snapping at my daughter and I felt like it was really important that people uh, give me space and respect the time it was going to take me to solve this electrical problem. Um, But my wife and my daughter, they understood better than me at the moment that I was just really crabby. I hadn't gotten enough sleep. I got up early in the morning to do this. It wasn't what I'd wanted to do. Um, and it felt to me like what I was saying to them and how I was saying it was really important and that they really needed to listen to me. And that's the way it felt to me at the time. But, but they could see that I needed to have lunch 
maybe you know they didn't offer me a Snickers bar, but maybe they should have. Uh, and um, so I think that we, in a way, do this all the time is that in the moment you can be caught up in feeling very strongly about something. Yeah. And yet it, if you, when you look back on it later, you will see, oh, I was tired or I was hungry or I was displacing from something else. Mm. And since we can do it when we look back, we can also do it third person at somebody else. And so it's not going to be perfect. We can go wrong. We can screw it up and bad things can happen when we screw it up. But, uh, but we can do it. Yeah. You know, there's a hypothesis, uh, Mark, that, you know, the, the human brain will not be able to understand itself. You know, it's sort of analogous to your, your novel writing uh, example that as you write new pages, you are changing yourself. Exactly. And so any process, right, any process that has an ex-ante expectation of understanding yourself cannot succeed because the next step you have changed the object itself. That's right. So understanding is, you know, always, um, it, it's always going to be impossible. But the effort to understand can be one of the yeah. really meaningful ways in which we, we shape and lead our lives. Often when we decide what we're going to do, often I think we, we make decisions that fit with our existing understanding of how it's going. Yeah. Just like if I'm writing a novel and I get to chapter three, I'm going to write the chapter three that fits with the story that I think I'm telling, uh, uh, because that's how I think I need to get to chapter seven where I'm going. Even if yeah. by the time I get to chapter seven, I have realized a better way for it to go. Right. So just like when we're writing a novel, I think that, that the choices that we we make often are shaped by this, by this uh, imperfect understanding that we have. Yeah, so so the, the basic idea, persons are, uh, I, 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 I'm guessing here, you're saying persons are not things. Um, by things, um, you know, we generally define something that is, that is more precise, more concrete, more deterministic in its stance, whereas uh, a person is not that. Um, yeah. it, it is that. It yeah. is continuing. So the, ti yeah. the title of the paper is uh, really a reference to yeah. a distinction that the philosopher Immanuel Kant makes. And Kant says that persons and things are really very different. He says that mere things, he says, are governed by laws of nature, that their behavior is determined by natural laws. Whereas he says persons their behavior isn't determined by natural laws at all. They're, what they do is they, they do things for reasons. They decide what to do. Now, there are a lot of difficult interpretive issues about what Kant really meant by this distinction. Right. But it, it sounds to some people like he's talking about two very different kinds of things. And I, I think that's not true. I don't think that persons are very different from things. I think that we... We get to be persons by being things, you know, we have, we're human organisms. We have bodies. Those follow all kinds of causal processes. 
uh, down to the neurochemical level and are influenced in ways revealed by social and situational psychology by our our environments. But, But I do think that we're not just organisms. I think that part of why it feels like we're being brought down when somebody merely, uh, you know, somebody listens to your podcast and they're like, well, yeah, of course he'd ask that question because he was trained as an engineer. And, <laughs> and you think, and you think, well, wait a minute, it was a good question. And you feel like they're not taking you seriously as soon as they think of your questions as the kind of thing that we can predict according right. to calls or statistical generalizations. Yeah. So I, I think that part of the reason we feel that way is that being a person is being an interpretive object. It's, it's being this kind of organism under a particular kind of interpretation about which parts of your behavior are the ones that are worth engaging with and responding to and having answers to and admiring and respecting and being disappointed in and jealous of and which parts of your behavior and the things that you say and the things that you think are the kinds of things that we should just look o- overlook if we want to engage and talk right. to talk to you. Yeah. But but from a sort of a biased engineering perspective, yeah. Mark, you know, so you say, you know, things be things uh, obey natural laws. One could argue um, persons or organisms also behave natural laws yeah, in, in, in the components, right? There, there is nothing inside a human that does not behave, uh, that does not obey laws of physics, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, anything that shuttles around in your brain, you know, uh, any, any fluid that goes through your body, all of those obey natural laws. Now, I think what, what we are saying is that given all of that, though, we don't have high predictability or what a human would do. Okay? We, we don't. But, yeah. but I think that in addition to the predictability, we're, we want to do more than predict with each other. We want to decide yeah. what, what's worth responding to. So, so here's a helpful contrast. So people sometimes distinguish between being persuaded by somebody's argument. So they make a point and you're like, oh, yeah. And they give you credit for convincing them. And yeah. changing your mind at the same time, being in a way that's prompted by hearing what somebody else says. So people sometimes complain about um, a kind of mansplaining where you give an, uh, often a woman gives an argument to somebody and her interlocutor uh, says, oh, here's, here's a good idea. And they repeat back exactly what she just said as if he just thought of it himself. Right. And, and that's changing your mind in a way that's prompted by what somebody says but it's not really being persuaded by them. And so the latter thing I think brings you down because it's not the kind of response you have to a person. It's the kind of response you could have to, you know, the clouds looking like that argumentative text or, or anything that prompted the same thought. Whereas when we're convinced by somebody, there's, yeah. there's something else that happens that we give them credit. And so I think that Treating somebody as a person involves thinking of them in a particular kind of way. Um, and a helpful, this is just a metaphor perhaps, or a very loose analogy, but yeah. often when, you know, when we have modeling understandings of many kinds of phenomena, models always work by excluding. There's always extra stuff that we could include. 
and we exclude it. So when we we're thinking about how a, a gas behaves using ideal gas law, we're yeah. we're leaving out friction. We're leaving out that that um, all kinds of particular information, um, the size of the particles. But uh, that's information that's relevant for predicting some of the behavior. But the parts of the behavior that, of the gas that it predicts are the sort of ungassy aspects of the behavior, the things that make it less than ideally gassy. Um, right. I think the same. And so when we're thinking about it as a gas, that's that we leave out. And likewise, I think yeah. that when we're thinking about somebody as a person, we are making choices about what to leave out and what to leave in. And that particular way of making a choice about what to leave out and what to leave in and how we think about them is a kind of, you could think about it as analogous to a kind of modeling choice. And, um, and it gives us a, a person-like understanding of somebody. It might not be the best predictive understanding of them, but it can still be very helpful to understand them as a person in that way. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, Mark. So, you know, there could be a cognitive cost to understanding, right? So, uh, you know, uh, for me to transact with somebody else, the, the least cost uh, position might be to consider that person a thing, right? So, you know, the expectations are all fully defined and I can just react to those expectations. Now, maybe there's a second best case, uh, which is, you know, the person is not a thing, but I have set of boxes, a pre-designed boxes where I'm going to put that person into one of those boxes. Mm -hmm. and all the attributes of those boxes are well known and I can react to it. Yeah. Co the cognitive cost for either one of these things are very low compared to me spending time. Yeah. And to understand that person, right? Yeah. And so, and so this is what we see actually in the world, right? I don't think people people spend um, that effort to. I mean, it is it is actually quite costly <laughs> to think about it to to really understand another individual. I, no, I think I think that's it's right that we we do resort to these kinds of of shortcuts, but I also think that when we do. When somebody else does that with us, we do feel like we've been diminished in some way. That there is a more respectful way of thinking or relating to us that somebody has skipped or they've oversimplified. Um, right. And so I think that it is, um, uh, it's still tracking what this distinction is between when we feel like we've been treated like a person and when we feel like we've been diminished. Mm. Has, the, has the idea of a person changed over time? So, you know, if you, if you go back to the inception of humans or maybe just to older cultures, um, historical understanding, uh, has the modern context set the person closer to a thing? Um, I think that it's a feature 
of the kind of optimism we have about the progress of science increasing over the last several centuries that it is it is probably the case that more and more people feel like that aspects of personhood that are important are going to fit into this way that Kant thinks about things. Um, but I, I think that Kant's observation that uh, we do treat things and people in different ways is really important and that we, we don't have to lose it just because we come to a scientific understanding of the way that we are realized. An analogy I find very helpful is just the analogy between persons and uh, texts. So uh, in, in the paper, I compare uh, persons to works of philosophy, but I think the same thing works for novels or poems or any other text that's capable of being interpreted. Yeah. The, um, the text is all there. It's you know some ink on a page or it's pixels on a screen or it's ones and zeros in the database. So everything about how the text is and how it functions and the way that the letters uh, signify sounds and come together to have be well syntactically formed sentences, um, that I think is all something that we can have our scientific understanding of. But then something does happen when we have a text like Hamlet that there's an object of interpretation there. And we can feel like we come to understand that better over time as we come to have a better understanding of what's going on with it. And it might be that we don't all ultimately agree on what the best interpretation of it is. But when we interpret it and think of what it's doing in that way, we get to engage with it in a whole different way that rises above the way we engage with it when we just see this ones and zeros. So that interpretive object is arises out of the ones and zeros, but there's the interpretation itself adds something important. Right. But, but is the, isn't the style of interpretation is a function of the interpreter uh, in some sense? Um, you know, couldn't the interpretation reduce, reduce the, the person to ultimately a thing? Uh, in other words, you know, I can imagine uh, interpretation um, styles or sequences that um, after I interpret something, the amount of information coming out of that process is much, much smaller. Um, that's correct. But there's, but I think that we have to be specific about what kind of interpretation it yeah. is that uh, interpretation of Hamlet is or interpretation of a person is. And I think that the, uh, the kind of interpretation that we're looking for when we interpret Hamlet or we interpret a text, uh, philosophical text or person is we're looking for ways of identifying what the contribution is of that person or, and what the background is. As I think about with persons, we're, we try to distinguish, or what we need our interpretations to do is distinguish the protagonist from the predicament. Yeah. So uh, sometimes maybe it is that being 
hangry is the predicament that somebody's in that they have to overcome as the protagonist. And sometimes uh, uh, being hangry as a response to their hunger is their character. It really is the protagonist. So, so in the paper, Mark, you, you talk about sort of two types of interpretation, if I understand this correctly, sort of a causal interpretation and rational interpretation. How do you, how do you define those? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm more confident of that there is this distinction uh, oh, okay. than how to think about uh, either of them exactly. So, yeah. so if causal interpretation is what we're doing most of the time, when we're taking the approach of science to understand how things are gonna behave and what to expect of them. Um, I think what's important about rational interpretation is that it's this kind of interpretive process where we decide which aspects of, we construct a story out of a life and figure out which aspects of that story are the places where the protagonist is active and those are things that we need to respond to and which places yeah. they're, they're passive in the face of something. And it's really their predicament that they need to overcome. And so mm. I think that one of our tools for doing that is that the places where we think of them as being passive, we treat what happens to them or what they do in the ordinary way that we think of other things. Um, mm. I call that causal in the paper, although I think sometimes we think statistically rather than causally. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm not trying to draw that contrast in the paper. Um, uh, uh, but what's important about the, the rational interpretation is that we're, we're classifying some things in, as in as part of the protagonist and some things as out as part of their predicament. And the, the protagonist-y things we tend, not, we tend to ignore what we know if we know something about their exact causes. Okay. And so, so, so the rational interpretation would be more holistic. Yeah, I, I do think it's holistic. Now, this is a way in which my view contrasts with others. Yeah. Other philosophers have drawn this distinction and thought that we could give a non-holistic view about what the difference is. And I, I just think that's hopeless. I think we need some more holistic way of drawing the distinction. Is it is it teachable? Is it teachable how to do this? How to do it, yeah. Um, that's a very interesting question. It's not a question I'd thought about before. Uh, it's, yeah. it's just like a pretty important question if among the things that we are going to uh, teach machines to do that persons do is to do this interpretation, uh, we better know how that's gonna go. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I, I guess I don't know the answer to that question. I, I would take it that it, it must be, but I'm, I'm not sure how to do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way that I was thinking about it is that uh, if I understand it correctly, the causal interpretation would be more, you know, sort of uh, systematic and, and process oriented uh, that can be delegated to computers. Uh, by the way, I don't think we are anywhere close to um, making a person uh, analogous to a computer, yeah. just uh, fan yeah. fancy dreams. Yeah, especially because uh, we can't really make computers interpret um, when information is absent or uncertain or, or generally not known, you know. Uh, and so, 
so so that you know we haven't been able to figure that out mm-hmm. uh, i was asking teachable question more about more more for people yeah. right so could we actually teach a person to who is maybe more prone to let's say causal interpretation to to move toward more rational interpretation but it's a skill that a person could acquire over time i think that there are differences between people in to what extent they apply these but yeah. i'm inclined to think that there the reason it looks like the difference in how they apply these is really because they're already engaged in rational interpretation it's just that part of what rational interpretation lets you do is to count some stuff as not the stuff to be rationally interpreted <laughs> that's part of what we do when we rationally interpret people we say hey yeah. oh i'm going to engage with what they said but not their tone of voice or uh, we listen to the words that somebody th- says but not the the tones uh, unless we're trying to mimic their speech so we 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 look over stuff all the time and so i tend to think that that it's just something that that people are always doing it it's just that the it, because there's this discretion in this process of interpretation to count more or less stuff as the um the protagonist that uh there are differences between us about how much of that stuff we should count and so i'm not sure if it's teaching or not maybe maybe the people maybe the people who are counting more as predicament are are doing better than those of us who are counting more as protagonists. So, 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 how do you sum up the sum up essay, Mark? Uh, this, this is a hard one. This is my <laughs> my least summable essay. I guess that the the answer is this. I think that I think that what is to be a person like you or me, mm-hmm. according to the hypothesis I defend in the paper, is that. is to be an interpretive object is to be the best version of yourself the best story about where it is that you're free and active in your life and where it is that you're passive and i feel like that is a a um an optimistic way to think about ourselves is that yeah. is that we really are the best version of ourselves and giving us some some charity trying to give us the benefit of the doubt is something that we we deserve because uh because that's part of who we are that's that's the, the idea in the paper right right because anything else is unknown right so you, you could imagine something uh but you'll be imagining both both you know uh both the, the the conditions as well as the results of that but it's not really knowable and so so in 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 some ways you only have one instance of yourself and 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 that's probably the best instance i, I that feels good to be to find out that, that we're the best instance of ourselves yeah excellent excellent we'll take a quick break uh, mark and when we come back we talk about uh, your author essay treating like a child great thank you This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at 
scientificsense.com. So we're back. Uh, Mark, uh, you have another essay entitled Treating Like a Child. You say no one wants to be treated like a child. To be treated like a child offends our dignity in many cases, to offends the dignity even of children. Um, so this seems, uh, seems uh, <laughs> obvious. Um, but what, what is the issue that you are really, really talking about here? Uh, is it that some people treat children like children, but then they don't, it's not necessarily a good, a good way to do it? But what exactly is the crux of the essay? Yeah, so, so we have a concept of paternalism which we think of as maybe uh, illiberal states as having a paternalistic attitude towards their citizens, or we think of people as being inappropriately paternalistic if they have take a, a real interest in what their neighbors are doing in, at home, where it's nobody else's business. Yeah. And so there's a kind of liberal idea that it's bad when people are paternalistic to one another. And what the paper is really about is it's about trying to push back against a very common way of understanding what paternalism is mm. and uh, and with it pushing back on, I think, a misguided way of understanding what's wrong about paternalism. So the, the misguided idea is that treating somebody paternalistically is treating them like a child. Yeah. And what I want to say in the paper is that that's wrong, that... Actually, if we just take the etymology seriously, treating somebody paternalistically is treating them like you're their, their parent. Mm. That's what it is to treat somebody paternalistically. And so there's a kind of relationship that makes it appropriate to treat somebody paternalistically when you really are their parent or you have a parent-like relationship to somebody. Right. And so uh, uh, it is when you don't have such a relationship that it's a bad to treat them in those ways. Whereas on a more um, orthodox view, what's wrong about treating somebody paternalistically is that it's treating them as a child and uh, not everybody's a child. So uh, for example, on the orthodox view, uh, once people are adults, it should never be appropriate to treat them paternalistically hmm. because uh, they're, they're just not children. Whereas on my understanding, it's definitely going to be much less often okay to treat somebody paternalistically. But if there are some people who have relationships to others that are relevantly like the relationships of parents, yeah, then it might in some limited cases be okay for adults to treat each other paternalistically. Mm. And that, that's one of the, one of the upshots of the paper. Right. Right. So, so, so the, the term um, paternalistic, treatment in itself, um, if I understand you correctly, should be put in the in context um, before we can say it's a good thing or not. Um, yeah, I think I think we should all agree that not all paternalistic treatment is bad. Uh, when parents treat their children like children, including very young children, yeah, presumably that's presumably that's okay. Mm. It's okay for me to, you know, tell my five-year-old, you know, that he's not going to get dessert unless he finishes his asparagus. But it would be weird for me to, 
show up for, for dinner at your house and tell you the host, well, if you don't finish your asparagus, you know, uh, <laughs> you're not going to get dessert or, or offer some other, you know, threat or a bribe. Um, yeah. And not just because you're the host. If I did that to another guest, that wouldn't be appropriate either. Um, and the, on the Orthodox view, we'd say that's because your other guest is not a child. But I would say it's no, it's not because they're not a child. It's because you're not their parent. It would also be inappropriate, I think, for me to show up at your house and tell the child of another guest that if they don't eat their asparagus, they're not going to get dessert. That's not my place because I'm not their parent. And so even though they're a child, it's not okay. We really need to have the right relationship with somebody to treat them in that way. Right. So, so I'm, I'm trying to abstract this um, just a little bit. So, you know, if I were to do a thought experiment, Mark, let's say um, there is a child, there is a person who is acting paternalistically to the child, it, it doesn't have to be the parent. It may be somebody else. Let's mm -hmm. say the child is playing video games and the, the person talking to the child uh, tells the child not to play video games and waste time. Uh, but let's say in the future, the world has only video games and nothing else. Okay. So... So that will be bad information. So in other words, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the, the conventional notions that, that we say is the norm is acceptable is based on set of assumptions. When those assumptions change, in this case, the parent is in no position to give advice to the child. Um, because well, it doesn't know yes. video games. It could be the parent is yeah. in a position to give advice because the parents in a better position to know about the future than the child. It's just that they're wrong. They're so wrong. yeah, it could still be that they, that they are in a better position to guess about the future than the child. Cause they have more relevant information about what the future might hold. They may not. Uh, yeah. But, but they might, they might not. It might be that yeah. the, the child's acquaintance with video games puts them in a position to understand why it might turn out that everything will be video games in the future in a way that the parents couldn't appreciate because they don't know enough about video games. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So what I'm arguing, this is not necessarily in the paper, but I want to get your perspective on it. What I'm arguing is that in a, in a regime where information is changing quite dramatically, the parent to child relationship that we expect from a societal norm, um, it's not necessarily, um, let me call it, not necessarily optimum, uh, because the parent might give the, the, the child direction, advice, and all of them would be wrong because the parent doesn't have sufficient information or has yeah. less information than the child. So, so I, I think that my account that I give ultimately in the paper can explain yeah. why that would be and can resonate with your idea that under certain circumstances, the appropriate scope for paternalism could, could for, on the part of parents could shift. So let me, let me say a little bit about how my, yeah. my positive view in the paper works in order to say why I think it applies. So what I say in the paper is that objectionable paternalism, the kind that's treating somebody in a way that is not appropriate 
happens when you try to, you think you know what's best for somebody, um, but you, uh, you try to constrain what they do or influence what they do to be better for them. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, in a way that um, uh, interferes with their autonomy. Right. And autonomy, I think, is just self-governance. That's what it means to be autonomous. It means to govern yourself. Hmm. So if autonomy is self-governance, then I think that sometimes we could influence what somebody does, but not interfere with their autonomy. Hmm. If part of what we do is we influence who they are. So because parents typically, especially of very young children are in a position to have an extended long-term relationship with their children. They're in a position to believe that they will help to, to grow their child into being the kind of person who will look back on this particular event and be glad that their parent encouraged them to eat their vegetables. Hmm. Um, and if that's true, then by encouraging the child to eat their vegetables, we haven't interfered with their autonomy. What we've done is we've helped them become the kind of person uh, who would like to have overcome their childish uh, distaste for uh, vegetables in order to be healthy. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the model is that when somebody has an extended long-term relationship with somebody who's, that's going to help to shape who they are, you can do these kinds of things. And that comes in, that comes in degrees. Right. So there's no on or off point. And it can be affected by environmental and cultural factors. It could be, for example, that in some parts of the world, uh, people live under their parents' roofs uh, uh, a decade longer or two decades longer than other parts of the world. And we would expect that in those parts of the world, there's more room for the parents to influence their children. Mm. And so I would expect that in those parts of the world, there'll be more reasonable for parents to be paternalists to give up more things uh, as their child is older. Whereas in cultures in which it's normal to leave home at a younger age and for parents to have less of a say or influence, uh, it's gonna be less appropriate for parents to have influence at that earlier stage. Yeah. And again, I think if we have the kind of case where you were describing where yeah. the world is changing, right. uh, when the world's changing in that way, I, I, it's going to be less appropriate for parents to guess that the, the, their child will be successfully shaped in some particular way. Um, and so again, I think that's the kind of thing that could in, in principle make a difference. Yeah. So, you know, your uh, vegetable example, um, the presumption is that vegetables are good for you and that assumption could be wrong. Right. Okay. And, and so the parent is using it as a heuristic uh, because he or she has learned that as truth in the past, but but it is not true, <laughs> let's say, right? So, so you'll be using a heuristic that's already expired in a way to, you know, to influence influence the child. So that is where I think the the, the issue, you know, in some sense happens. You know, if you look at in, into cultures, um, you know, more um, more ancient cultures around the world, mm -hmm. there's sort of an ancestor worship problem in those cultures. Uh -huh. and the assumption is that the ancestors knew a lot of things. 
I it's see. an assumption. <laughs> it's yeah. an assumption. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I think that I think that um, you are you are latching on to something a little bit different from what I was most worried about in the paper. But yeah. I think that that the the need to respect the wisdom of the past is something that we want to be cautious about how we apply it as the world changes. Right. My, my own view is that we can sometimes be too incautious about throwing it out. Um, uh, but as the world changes, uh, certainly stuff that was really well in, reinforced by uh, evolution and by culture and by experience is stuff yeah. that in principle could be totally irrelevant um, in the contemporary world. And yeah. to the extent that parents are passing on that, I think that sometimes they're making mistakes. I think that's right. Yeah, and, and so there may be an alternative, which is the way that I think, if I understand this correctly, Mark, you know, the, the parent to child uh, relationship doesn't take a lot of feedbacks um, in the conventional way. It's, it's one-way traffic, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the parent really understands that he or she does not have full information, then uh, that relationship becomes sort of two-way traffic. And so both people can, um, can take advantage of information that other has, provided both are open to new information coming to them. That's right. And in the earlier part of our discussion today, we were talking about ways in which uh, we sometimes bring people down or write them off by uh, treating you know, what they say as not really coming or what they do as not really being them, but as that being their environment. Yeah. One way that we can get into trouble is when we do that, not just to somebody snapping at you or somebody doing something, but rather to the, what they say. So if, if I'm the parent and I've decided that I want to raise my children uh, to resist clever marketing strategies and <laughs> not, not be, uh, you know, ignore um, ad campaigns and product rollouts and try to be a good consumer. And yeah. I have a child who's really interested in uh, technology and they spend all their time, you know, watching uh, YouTube videos of the CEOs of tech companies revealing their new products. Uh, they might have all kinds of information that I might not treat as information because even though I recognize that they have information about tech products, I see them as sharing that information with me only because they've been influenced by these clever marketing strategies that I want them to stop being influenced by. And so I, I ignore them. And I think that we can do that to each other. We can, we can have information for each other and we can recognize that we have information for each other and we can ignore each other even so. And if, if that happens, then we're, we're it's not going to work this way where the parents will, will, get this new information from their children. They parents sometimes um, overlook it or treat their children like they don't have something to share. And that can be a way that, doesn't, that we don't succeed at this. Right. 
And, you know, in a larger context, you can take this to societies, you can take this to organizations where you have sort of a hierarchical structure and the, and the paternal child relationship is playing out in all of those, all of those uh, systems. Um, hierarchy, you know, in some sense is, a, um, is, is, is a way to enforce this type of relationship. You know, the, the person on top of the pyramid feels obligated to develop, quote unquote, the basement um, without understanding that the basement actually could have more information than, uh, than at the top of the pyramid in, in complex systems like companies or, or societies. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, that, that seems right to me. And so, and so if you go back to the paper, you know, you, you talk about um, autonomy and, uh, and selves. So, so, so how do you sort of, again, you know, summarize the, the idea? I think, um, I think that the idea yeah. of the paper is really just that, that yeah. paternalism is about acting in ways that are licensed by the relationship you have with somebody. And that if you want to try to benefit somebody in ways that they don't seem to want, then you'd better be committed to having the kind of relationship with them that will make them appreciate it. And if you're not, if you're just going to pass to somebody on the street and judge what's right for them, then I think it's inappropriate for you to be paternalistic in that way. And so when we're, when we try to influence each other for the better, that's a kind of exercise of power. And I think that kind of power only comes with responsibility. Right. Right. Yeah. So to, to exercise power that way, uh, you know, sort of do it and walk away is actually less costly for the one who's exercising it. But you're, what you're saying is that if you do that, a um, bunch of other things that need to follow through with that. Yeah, you, you, you need uh, to be committed. Right, right. So it's not a transaction. It's ultimately, as you say, you are entering into a relationship. That's right. That has more, yeah, yeah. And so, so, so in, in conclusion, then, Mark, you know, so how do you, you know, going back to what we were discussing before, um, how do you put these ideas? Um, how we interact with other people? Um, how do we interpret them? And in this, this is a specific instance of an interaction between a parent and a child or, a, or somebody who is acting paternal to somebody else. How do you think all of these things are changing in the, in the modern context? So are they changing at all? It just feels like they're changing. Um, that's a really good question. I think they're not fundamentally changing, yeah. but I do think that, uh, that part of how we interpret each other is shaped by the reactions that each other have to other things that we're also interpreting. And yeah. so I think that one of the things that can happen even between parent and child is that part of how we, we don't just understand each other directly based on our own direct experiences of each other, 
but we see how each other react to things like the rise of Donald Trump. There are really salient shared experiences and we start to see each other as on sides of those things. When we learn that somebody voted for Donald Trump or we learn that they did not vote for Donald Trump, they voted for somebody else, we feel like that tells us something about them because we think we know something about the thing they're reacting to. And I think that part of what's really dangerous about this is that we're used to uh, having things that we have a shared understanding of. And when we understand something the same way and we both like it, then we understand a lot about each other, that there's a lot about each other to like. And when we understand it in the same way and we, we have opposite reactions to it, I like it and you hate it, then we understand a lot about each other. We understand that we're very different. But if, if we try to triangulate on that way, but we don't really have the same interpretation of the thing we're triangulating on, then that can lead us to be even more mistaken in our interpretations of each other than we would be otherwise. So, yeah. so if we're not perfect at interpreting things and um, each of us have very different interpretations of the thing we're triangulating on, I think that can really make it harder. And that's one of the things that I think is happening um, in, over the last few years and is one of the things I think that's going on with uh, political polarization, um, both at large and as many of us know in our families, um, as we find that we have deep disagreements with our parents or our children or our siblings about politics. Um, and I think that this sort of the way that the, the attention economy sort of seizes up uh, a small number of things to be the things that everybody's reacting to, um, together with the fact that different people still see different kinds of things about that thing can really be a recipe for making this harder for us. Yeah, that, that's really interesting way to think about it. So, you know, I would think about every observation, every transaction that you're interpreting, there are some errors. There is, there is no perfect interpretation. And as you file away that information with errors, they tend to be self-reinforcing. Yeah. And so, so there is really no way. That, so once you go down a track in terms of, you know, collecting and interpreting information on another individual, let's say, um, that is sort of a one-way process. You never really turn back on that process because every piece of new information either going to be self-reinforcing or you're going to discard it completely. That's right. And it could be that part of the ways that we're socially organized can make it harder. If we're stuck in smaller communities with the same people, sometimes as each of our relationships have other people who know both of us, that can be a way to set us yeah. back on track. But when it gets easier and easier to abandon relationships and start new ones, um, and we have fewer and fewer common parties who know each of us, um, I think that that can be, can reinforce this phenomenon as well. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. This has been great, Mark. Thanks so much for spending time. Thank you so me. much. This is, this was really fun. I appreciate it. Thank you.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.